Good morning. Are you alive? Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here at Courtright. And we are preparing for the arrival of Jesus at Christmas by, right now we're in the middle of looking at some of our favorite, most beloved Christmas carols. But you'll have to forgive me because last week I failed to define my terms. I know some of you were left here outraged by that. So what is a Christmas carol? We've sung four of them already this morning. The first one we sang was over 200 years old. The last one was less than 10. Here's a definition of a Christmas carol for you. A carol is a festive song, generally religious, but not necessarily connected with church worship, and sometimes accompanied by a dance. Justin, we missed that part, eh? <laughs> Christmas Eve, we're going to dance. Yeah, I thought Bruce would be okay with that. So the fact that part of the definition of a Christmas carol is that it's festive and sometimes accompanied by dancing might explain why some of the verses that deal with sorrow and sin get left out when you hear carols in the mall or in the waiting room. Last week, we realized that we don't stop and listen carefully to the words of these songs we sing during Advent and at Christmas very often. And even though they're familiar to us, we could do well, we could learn, and I hope we are, by pausing and considering how the best carols are these beautiful and profound poems brimming with God's truth, with biblical theology, and they can help to give us a fresh new angle on familiar passages of Scripture. They can wake us up to God's Word, if you want to think of it that way. So today we're going to look at a little town of Bethlehem, but we'll start by reading the New Testament account on which that Christmas carol is based in Luke chapter 2. Let's pray before we do that. Dear God, we've confessed already this morning that we have turned away from you, that we have shut our ears to you, to your truth, to your guidance. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would wake us up this morning, that you would draw us out of the darkness of our own devices, our own wandering, back into the light of your presence, Lord Jesus. Do that this morning through the ministry of your word, we pray. Amen. So we're reading from Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you the story of the little town of Bethlehem. It was written by a man named Philip Brooks in 1868, not long after the American Civil War had ended. Brooks was an Episcopal priest in Philadelphia. We'd call him an Anglican, this side of the border. He was also a leader in the abolitionist movement to end slavery in the US. He had a close friendship with President Abraham Lincoln. And after Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, Brooks delivered the eulogy at his funeral. He was devastated by the loss of his friend. So much so that the church he served gave him a year's leave to help him recover from his grief. And he used that time to travel to the Holy Land. While he was there, he visited Bethlehem. And he got the inspiration to write a poem about that little town. It was Christmas Eve, and Jerusalem was so crowded with pilgrims from all over the world that Brooks and his traveling companions actually had to leave the city, and they traveled on horseback to Bethlehem. And coming over the hill, they had a view of the town in the starlight that took their breath away. Two years later, he wrote a poem about that experience for the children in his congregation, and he based it on Luke 2. And then he asked his Sunday school superintendent to put a tune to it, as you do when you're the pastor. <laughs> Let me read the words of this carol to you. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to all on earth. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. As you can see, this carol that Brooks wrote has four stanzas, just like Joy to the World did last week. And we're going to look at each one of them in turn. 
The second chapter of Luke is probably the most famous of all the gospel nativity stories. Mark doesn't even have a story of the birth of Jesus. Matthew describes it in one verse. John gives us an amazing poem that's more of a theological interpretation of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, than it is an account of what happened in Bethlehem. So thank God for Luke. He's the one we turn to most at this time of year. And thank God for Phillips Brooks, who invites us to reflect on Luke 2 and to see that little town of Bethlehem all over again. In the first stanza of his carol, he offers us a view from a distance. Here's a photo from around the time that Brooks was there. You can see the simplicity of life at this point in the 19th century. No cars, no roads, no electricity. How still we see thee lie. It's peaceful. There's silence. You can imagine it at nighttime, the stars... And yet we read that the streets are dark. And that's not just because it's nighttime. There's an edge to the darkness. There's a deeper darkness. And there's fear in the air also. It's subtle, this darkness. And the song's melody is like a lullaby. It's a song written for kids. And so you can easily pass over and not even notice the darkness. But it's clear in the next line the hopes and fears of all the years. And so you have the darkness and these fears that are contrasted with light and the hope that we long for. And there's this tension there, the tension we feel every day in our lives. Bethlehem may be a quaint little town as Brooks paints the picture for us, but what's happening in it, he also wants us to perceive has this enormous consequence, more than anything its people could have realized at the time. The everlasting light is coming. And I love, I love that line, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. I was in Bethlehem five years ago. We went as a family for March break, but we got on the wrong bus. We were trying to get to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, but I hadn't read the directions right, and so the bus didn't take us to where we needed to go, and we had to walk for half an hour, at least. I think the kids' version of the story is that it was two to three hours. We had to walk for a while to get to Manger Square, where all the tourists go, and then you line up to get into the Church of the Nativity, which was built over the cave where they think Jesus was born. And there's been a church there for 1,700 years, so who are we to argue? To get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, you have to go through the wall that divides the West Bank from Israel. If you take the right bus, you just walk through it. You hardly see it. But we took the wrong bus. And so we ended up walking alongside this wall for six kilometers. And we saw up close how awful it is, how it gets in the way of people's lives, how it cuts people off from others, how it constricts, how it confines. And we also saw tons of graffiti like this. Human ingenuity prevails even when we put up walls. 
And then we came across something famous. You might have heard of the English street arts artist Banksy. No one seems to know for sure who he is, but he has left his mark on buildings and surfaces all over the world since the late 1990s when he came up through the Bristol underground scene. In 2005, Banksy created nine graffiti images on the Israeli West Bank wall, and we got to see one of them that day because I chose the wrong bus. Do I sound a little proud of that, even? <laughs> it was a hot day, and this image that Banksy created did little to redeem my reputation in the eyes of my children. We still had a long walk to endure, but I remember they stopped and they noticed it. It's powerful, isn't it? You see the dove and the olive branch, symbols of peace from the Old Testament, except here the dove's in a bulletproof vest, and it's a target. Gun sights are trained on it. They could be Israeli, they could be Palestinian. But even more, as you reflect on the meaning of this, it's peace itself that is under attack. And so in the dark streets of Jerusalem, which are still dark, there is violence and there is fear. And that's equally true of our own hearts. If the first stanza of this Christmas carol ends with the promise of some kind of resolution to our hopes and fears, the second stanza doesn't seem to resolve anything. Instead, we hear about the birth of Jesus. We briefly, really briefly, sing that Christ is born of Mary, but it's only a glimpse, and then our view immediately goes heavenward, up to the angels who are gathered all above. While mortals sleep, they keep their watch of wondering love. Then there's a reference to morning stars proclaiming the holy birth, except they aren't really stars. Morning stars is a way of talking about angels that we find in a few places in the Old Testament. And here the angels are singing praises to God the King and announcing peace to all the earth. It's almost a direct quote from Luke 2, verse 14. So we had an earlier view of Bethlehem, but now I think Brooks is inviting us to see it as the gospel writer Luke perceives it. Here we have a very different view of Bethlehem. The angels crowding at the sky, a sign of the cross above Bethlehem. And in this next image, and all of these are paintings by the artist Virginia Waringa, you see the streets are no longer dark. The whole of Bethlehem is lit up. The heavens are packed full of angels, of morning stars, like fireworks. And so we get a glimpse of this glory thanks to this incredible artwork. We'll come back to that. The third stanza of this Christmas carol meditates on the meaning of what happened in Bethlehem. Remember last week we said that the third stanza of a poem is often a turning point. We saw that in joy to the world, no more was that turning point. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more let thorns infest the ground. 
And I asked, what is growing in your life right now? Because sorrows and sins don't have to grow within us. The Holy Spirit invites us to look to him, to trust him, and to let joy grow. And here, in his third stanza, Brooks does the same thing. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. And so we have this silence, this silence that seems to be at the heart of Christmas. A little child born in the middle of nowhere, born into poverty and obscurity. Who would know? No one. No one knew. The greatest miracle, the greatest mystery in human history without any fanfare. Silently. But it's the quietness of the mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds. But wait and see what happens when it grows. And so Brooks invites us to ponder what this means when he writes, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. God does it imperceptibly. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So something amazing has happened, but it's not from us. It's not what we, in our resourcefulness, have found wandering the streets of this dark world. No, it's God imparting. It's Christ entering in. It's his kingdom coming. You may know that this time of year is dark for a lot of people. On Wednesday night, this coming week, we will literally have the longest night of the year, around 15 hours without sun. And that affects all of us, but some more than others. And it can be really hard on people's mental health. Then there's the pressure of the season to be holly and jolly. But many of us are not. Many of us are struggling in this world of sin and sorrow. And that's why we're holding a longest night service tonight at 7.30. It's a chance to worship while completely ditching the festive side of the season if you need to. It's a time to be still, a time to grieve, a time to weep, to pray, and to be honest about the heartache we live with and the thorns that infest the ground. It will be a time of lament and a time of praise. Tonight will be a third stanza moment, if you want to think of it that way. It's an invitation to sit in the tension, in the mystery of our suffering, not to rush on to the final stanza and the resolution. And as we acknowledge the darkness in our lives and in our hearts, we start to see that Christ enters in, that Jesus meets us right where we are. He's not pretending everything's okay, but he invites us to look up towards the angels, not to get stuck in back alleys and dead ends. And here you see the contrast between Jerusalem black and white, Jerusalem captured in a photograph, and Jerusalem through the eyes of the angels. And that's the glory God wants to open us up to. 
The veil is thin between heaven and earth as Jesus enters in, and he still does. The meaning of Christmas is simply that God is with you. Would you say that you stop each day and nurture that awareness that God is present, that he is entering into your circumstances? Those of us who serve on session as elders have been learning to do this more. We read a book over the past year that urged us to stop being all about business, to stop worrying about getting through the agenda, but invited us instead to seek God, and not just his will, but his presence even more. And we have prayed more together as a session over the past six months than any time I can remember since I came here. And God answered our prayers. And for me personally, Judith, my wife, and I have seen our prayers answered this fall in tangible ways also for our kids, for our future. In our church community, we want to hear these stories of Christ entering in more and more and to tell them to each other, to share them. And on January 8th, we're going to have some testimonies, and I trust that the Holy Spirit, as he makes all things new, heading into 2023, will move us to be more honest with both our fears and our hopes with each other. So where is Jesus entering into your life right now? He does that all the time, but we only see it when we stop and pay attention. If we go back to the first stanza of this poem, this carol, we have one of the most amazing lines of any carol or hymn you could ever sing. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All of our hopes and fears come together in Bethlehem. They converge in Jesus Christ. Let's think about that for a minute. How do hopes and fears converge? What fears would they have had? What were the shepherds afraid of? Well, they were afraid of Roman soldiers, for starters. The Romans had occupied the land. They were brutal in their violence, their oppression towards the Jewish people. The census, which we read so quickly in Passover, meant that Mary, so pregnant she was ready to burst, had to walk a hundred miles even though she was about to have a baby. What were the fears of the author of this Christmas carol? Well, the Civil War had just ended. He must have been wondering if the, if the country could be healed, whether a just peace could be worked out. And after the war, the U.S. went into a major economic depression. I'm sure he was worried about that too. What about us? What are you anxious about today? I know some of you are worried about a loved one who is sick, about an elderly parent, about a child or a grandchild or a friend who is struggling right now. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job or not being able to find the right one, a good one. You have financial worries. On a larger scale, we are worried about lots of things in the world. Changes in the culture, in technology, the environmental crisis, war all over the place, but especially in Ukraine, as global superpowers vie for supremacy. And for many of us, our fears have changed as we've gotten older. 
As a child, maybe we were afraid of the dark. As a teenager, you might have a feeling of anxiety about being different, about not fitting in. As adults, you have a whole new set of fears. And when people name their fears, when they're honest, a few always appear at the top of the list. The fear of aging, the fear of death, a fear of germs, and that was before 2019, so I'm guessing that jumped a few spots on the list. Fear of public speaking, especially naked. That's, that's a bad one. And the number one thing people fear, according to almost all the polls, is loneliness. That is a fear and anxiety that presses on us. And how are those fears met by hope? How does hope have an answer for fear? Well, for Christians, it comes in the good news of the birth of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, in which we find the ultimate source of hope. Because the fear of loneliness is really a fear of not being loved. And so God imparts the blessing of peace with the gift of Christ. The Holy Spirit assures us, seals on our hearts, that we are loved in him. And at the root of much of the anxiety we feel in our lives is a sense of guilt. Guilt for what we've done and what we've left undone. Sometimes unacknowledged guilt. And so God imparts the blessing of forgiveness. Jesus quite simply forgives our sins. He does it every Sunday. He does it every minute. St. Augustine once wrote that proud man would have died had not a lowly God found him. In Bethlehem, the lowly God of the whole universe reaches out to us and finds us. And so Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And if we go back to Banksy and that image of the dove and the olive branch, Jesus takes off the bulletproof vest. Jesus comes as one weak and vulnerable. And in the end, he dies so that we can live. He goes to the cross so that we don't need to be afraid of the darkness, so that the everlasting light that he promises will never go out. That is the hope of Christmas. This Jesus Christ comes to live in you and in me and makes us part of a new community, his church. And he calls us to work for peace and for justice, to serve the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. We're going to see a video about that in a few minutes. We don't need to be afraid any longer of being alone or even of death because nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. And so the final stanza of O Little Tent of Bethlehem is a prayer. Philip Brooks wanted the boys and girls in his church to pray this verse. Will we sing it ourselves as a prayer? Are you willing to open your life to the one who wants to abide with you, with us, who wants to enter in and cast out your sin and bring his healing? O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. He doesn't say descend to me, I pray. It's plural, it's we pray. It's the church's prayer. We respond as a community of faith 
who he has brought together, who have no earthly business being in this room, let alone in commitment to supporting one another. It's a prayer that Jesus will enter into our hearts and be born in us today. That's the only way lasting peace can come. Jesus enters as the Savior who brings hope in spite of all sin and sorrow. Would you let him come into your life? As you do that, he can take all the sin, all the sorrow, and all the thorns. And so we hear the good news of Christmas. The angels, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. So I want to invite you right now to join in that prayer. Ask Jesus to be with you, to abide with you, maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe as a movement towards recommitment. Pray those words. And then ask yourself, how can you abide with Jesus this week? In a tangible step, what is the one thing this week, in all the busyness of this week, that you could step aside from and notice and pay attention. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you can make space for God this week and beyond. And then the next thing, I want to invite you to pray for him to shine through you. Pray those words, shine through me. Who is he sending you to this week? Ask the Holy Spirit how you can reflect the everlasting light of Christ into someone else's life because it's not just for you. It's not just for us. Maybe it's a simple but intentional word of encouragement to someone who's been on your mind, but you haven't quite found the time to call them, to text them, to drop by. Maybe it's an invitation to one of our Christmas Eve services. That's an invitation that may be one of the few invitations to church that is still culturally acceptable. We celebrate Christmas far and wide. Who could you invite out on December 24th? Let's take a few minutes now, and these two prayers will be on the screen. Would you pray this way in the silence? Let us pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. You know, as we were praying, I had this image of a 
that everlasting light of Jesus refracted through all of you into the darkness of the city of Guelph for those who are struggling. And we are too, but would you be part of the light going out this week? Let's sing, let's sing this Christmas carol. You've been waiting. I appreciate your patience with me. This is the opportunity.